This morning, we're wrapping up a series of sermons on community, which we've kind of nicknamed Discipleship DNA. Uh, Next week, we're going to have a special sermon on Sunday, and then the week after, we're going to be jumping back into a year-long series through the book of Genesis, which will run through uh, until Advent. We've been talking about community for this past month because communities are the places where humans are formed and where humans live. And so if we're to be a church that makes disciples of Jesus to the glory of God, we have to do so as part of a community. Every human being, no matter who you are, Christian or not, is discipled, is formed in some way by the community that they're a part of. And every human being lives as part of a community. Nobody's alone, even if you're not conscious of that entirely. You're part of a people. We began this month by looking at the first community of discipleship, the family. And then over the past two weeks, we've talked about the church. Uh, The church is the family of God and how that itself is a specific and accountable, committed community. This morning, we're going to add the concept that the church is an elder-led community of discipleship. And this passage gives us three reasons for that. One, order matters. Second, godliness matters. And third, doctrine matters. So first, order matters. The book of Titus, from which we've read, is a letter from Paul to Titus. They were two early leaders in the Christian church, and they had gone to the island of Crete and preached the gospel and seen people converted to faith in Christ. But when Paul left, he told Titus to remain there. And in verse 5, he tells Titus why he left him there. He says that he might put in order what remained. When Paul left Crete, something was still out of order. And the thing he says is that the thing that was missing is elders had not yet been appointed in every town. Now, there's a couple times today where I'm going to pick on the ESV translators. That's the translation of the Bible we read from here in City Light. Generally a very reliable translation. But they may be revealing some of their rural bias here because they translate the word polis as town. But polis means city all throughout the Bible. And so he's saying, in every city, there ought to be elders. At this point, people had already been converted to Christ If they could even appoint elders, there must have been communities that were already in existence. So there were already communities of discipleship. But Paul says there's still something missing. Every city ought to have elders. He doesn't say, Titus, we're going to do elders over in this city, but that city, they're just going to do a Bible study. That city over there, they're just going to have worship nights. And who are we to tell them how they should govern their community, right? They say this is what's working for them. They say this is what's helping them make disciples. No, the assumption is that every city, without exception, is out of order until it has elders in place. Now, why is that? Well, notice what elders are referred to as in this passage. In verse 7, they're called overseers. And just a kind of quick sidebar, uh, if you've been in the church world, you, you hear people like me referred to a lot of different ways, right? Pastor, priest, bishop, uh, minister, whatever. This one, overseer, is where uh, a lot of denominations get their word for bishop. Uh, episcopal is the, is the Greek word, episcopal. Uh, It's it's where you get that concept of a hierarchy. But here what we see is that this word for overseer is used interchangeably with the word elder. In this passage, an elder is an overseer, an overseer is an elder. In other passages, they're also going to be, the word pastor is going to be used interchangeably as well. The word priest comes from the word behind elder. And so those words are all different words referring to the same office. A pastor is an elder, an elder is a bishop, if that even exists, a bishop is a pastor. Uh, It's kind of like, you know, I mentioned earlier I had a son recently, and one of the things we had to figure out was what he was going to call my parents, or what we're going to refer to my parents as. Is it grandma or grammy? Is it grandpa or pop or pap or poppy or whatever it may be? Because we have all these words that refer to the same office. 
So at City Light, a pastor is an elder, an elder is a pastor. We don't really use the word bishop culturally. If you want to call me Bishop Mike, you know, Overseer Mike, you could try that. Um, but my point is they're all, they're all referring to the same office. Nevertheless, each term does kind of shed a unique perspective on what the role of an elder is. And so overseer suggests that an elder is someone who has authority, right? They're to exercise oversight over the church. That said, um, oversight and authority probably aren't words that conjure up positive images in many of your minds, especially if you're kind of a 21st century Western American, right? Uh, we tend to speak more of power, even in our public discourse. You know, there's the people with power and the people who don't have it. And the assumption tends to be that those who have it are, are using it to oppress those who don't, right? If you're in a position of authority. So even in the popular kind of American psyche, the assumption can be that if someone is in a position of authority or they claim that they have authority over you, the very structure that confers that authority on them is there to oppress you and to oppress people like you. And so the ideal state then is for you to be free from any external authority so that you can do whatever your desires tell you you want to do and you're free to act on those. Now the church in America is far from immune from this way of thinking. We tend to assume, that, as with most things in life, that when it comes to our spiritual life, our relationship with God, our walk with God, how we relate to him, that we ought to be free to determine that for ourselves and to figure out what works for us and not do the things that don't. And so it's easy to interact with the church that way in America. You say, I'll, I'll take the parts that, are, that I like, that are helpful for me, and, I, and I, the parts that I don't, I'll just do without. But the idea that you would actually need someone to oversee you, another human, to oversee your walk with God, to oversee the community of discipleship to which you belong, feels downright oppressive, right? Now, I just kind of assumed for much of my Christian life, that that's just how everyone thought, right? That this is just a hard doctrine and we got to get over it because it's in the Bible. But part of the benefit of being a part of a multicultural church like City Light is you get to meet Christians from other cultures and you realize some of the things that seem automatic to us aren't as automatic to them when they read the Bible. So we have a couple in our church who's from South America. They live most of their lives there. They've now moved to America and they're members of our church. And I was talking to them about a hard conversation I had with someone they know well. And I had offered some correction to this person, something of a warning, and I was feeling bad about it. So I went to them and I said, you know, I felt like this needed to be said, but I think I was too harsh. You know, maybe I should have been more patient. Maybe I should have said it differently. And they quickly reassured me, oh no, trust me. If this person acted the way they are now at our church back home, they'd have been kicked out of the church already. They said, they think I'm a softy. <laughs> you know, they're like, you're, you're being nice. That's literally what the, what the husband said to me. Or I think of uh, members of our church who have Asian descent or you know, Asian-American culture. Uh, they tend to have a high respect for authority figures. And as a result, they're always telling me how much they appreciate my ministry as a pastor, uh, even when I feel like it's kind of mediocre or lackluster or whatnot. But they just they have this kind of respect for authority. Now, I know if you're an American in the room, you may be tempted to think, well, that's because they're legalistic in those countries, you know, and we're free in Christ and we're progressive, man. And like, they need to just... You know, we understand. Okay. Is it possible that maybe those cultures are seeing something in the Bible that we tend to miss, that we're blind to, because we've assimilated to our culture a bit too far? In this case, I think that is what's happened. Um, look, the, the Bible is not the book that's just going to affirm whoever's in power, right? It, when there are abuses of authority, the Bible is going to call those out, even among its own people and among its own nations. Uh, and those who abuse authority find themselves enemies of God, 
Throughout the Bible, God is identifying with the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the oppressed. And yet the solution the Bible gives to abuses of authority is never the removal of any structure that confers authority, right? Because authority itself is not the problem. Authority in the Bible is a good thing when it's exercised, right? And here in this passage, we see that without oversight, the churches are out of order. It's chaos. If you've been with us at City Light this year, see if you can remember back to Genesis chapter 1 when we preached on that. When God creates, what was the earth? The earth was formless and void. And what does God do? He speaks order into the chaos. And that's a good thing. The creation is very good when God does that. God creates humans in his image. And what does he do? He says, I give you dominion over the earth. He says, I want you to rule over the earth. Oversight is good. It's when God's authority is rejected, and it's because God's authority has been rejected that so much of the way we exercise authority is broken. But the absence of authority is not a good thing. If you've ever worked at a job where you were poorly managed or where you had no management, you know it's not life-giving, right? People want to get things done, but they don't know how to. They don't have the resources they need. They don't know what the expectations are on them. Chaos is not freeing. It's draining. The solution to abuses of power is not the elimination of oversight. It's the right people in positions of oversight. So who are they? That's what this passage gets us into next. In a word, they're godly because godliness matters. It's, it's probably fair to ask at this point, and maybe some of you are, okay, Mike, you got me. Authority is a good thing in the Bible. Clearly, God exercises authority. But why, why a human authority? Why a person, right? Well, there's some mystery to this. Like, why does God choose to enact his purposes through people? But he does, right? From the beginning of the Bible, he creates, and then he creates humans in his image and tells them to rule and exercise authority over the earth. Here in this passage, we see in verse 7 that Elders are called overseers, and then they're called stewards, right? An overseer as God's steward. Now, what's a steward? A steward is not an owner. A steward is a manager. So God is saying, I own the church. I bought them with my blood. These are my people. But I'm going to give these overseers the genuine authority to manage this church under my ultimate authority. God chooses to do that. And it can't be just anyone. For that kind of job, the qualifications have to fit the job. Notice again, the church is being referred to as the family of God, and so we need family leaders, right? Family stewards. There's a basic qualification that I just want to mention first before I talk about godliness. This one doesn't have anything to do with godliness. It's more so just assumed in the passage. And it's that an elder must be male. An elder must be a man, must have Y chromosomes. Now, I know that sounds like nails on a chalkboard to some of you, and so I want to just explain that a little more. Uh, it's more so assumed in this passage than anything else, right? It says he must be the husband of one wife. He must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word, and so forth. First uh, Timothy 2, a similar letter to Titus, says it more clearly. First uh, Timothy 2.11, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, for man was created first and then woman. And as we've just talked about, the job of an elder is oversight, exercising authority, As we're going to see in verse 9, another job of an elder is to teach the word. And here we see Paul prohibiting those things to be done by women. How less educated, less godly, less uh, competent. That's just not true, right? I mean, if you're a guy, you just know there's plenty of women around you who are more gifted than you, who are more godly than you. Um, The reason that he gives is in the created order. He says, for man was created first, then woman. He's saying, we have an ultimate authority that it is a good thing for us to be subject to. And it is the creator God. And the creator God doesn't make junk. He doesn't mess up. He's created in a particular order with particular purpose. And he appeals to that purpose to talk about how the church is to be governed. Because the church is the family of God. 
and therefore the church should reflect God's family, ultimately. And God's family is one with a man at the head, Jesus Christ. That's why in the biological family, the nuclear family, husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself, gave himself up for her. And then he, Paul doesn't look in Ephesians 5 at the wife and say, now you do the same thing. He tells the wife, you submit to your husband as, Christ, as the church submits to Christ. And so here also, the, the church family is to have male leadership as a representation of Christ's male leadership. Now, that's totally unnecessary in most organizations in society, right? God doesn't look at your workplace and say, that's my house, and so there has to be male leaders. And so there shouldn't be a glass ceiling in the world for women. There, the fact that 92% of CEOs are men probably has more to do with our sin than it does with anything in God's creation. But it's important for like a thousand reasons that you understand that the church is not a business, The church is not just another organization in society where the two genders are just competing for power. It's not not a government, like a representative democracy where we have to make sure every interest group gets represented on the governing board. That's, That's a very American idea. That's the American way. But that's not the same as the biblical way, okay? There's differences between those things. The church is not a government. It's not an organization like any other. It's not a workplace. It's a representative of God's family on earth, and God's family has a man at the head, Jesus Christ. That's why an elder must be male. But having a Y chromosome is more of a minimum. Uh, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with godliness, right? It has to do with represent, representing Christ as a male. But this passage calls for much more for what an elder must be. What would be important for an elder, for a household manager over God's household? Again, we see it's not the same things as a business. We don't get a list of qualifications like you would get for a CEO. Charisma is not on the list. Social skills, not on the list. Myers-Briggs personality type, Enneagram number. Uh, What else is out there? Strength finder or disc assessment or whatever. Not on the list, right? Career success, whatever. Not there. Uh, Jeff Bezos may be a great CEO, but if half the stories about that guy are true, he'd be a disaster as an elder. Despite the name elder, there's not even an age qualification given. Think about this. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to Jesus Christ when he was 33. Most of his disciples were younger than he was, uh, you know, biblical scholars suggest. And so age can lead to an accumulation of wisdom, but it's never a qualification in the Bible for eldership. Rather, the main qualification is godliness, that they represent the owner of the house. Verse 6 summarizes this as above reproach. Now, above reproach, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean perfect, or else only Jesus could be an elder, right? And Titus is barking up the wrong tree looking for perfect people in Crete. They're just not there. But it should be someone that you can't look at their life and find strikes against them and say, ah, see, I I knew he was a phony. I knew he wasn't really godly. And since this elder is to be a manager of God's house, it makes sense that that qualification would start in his own home. And that's where we see it start in verse 6, right? It says, no one should be able to look at this man and say, ah, but he's not the husband of one wife. Again, not meaning that an elder has to be married. That would rule out all of the first elders, all of Jesus' apostles. But it's saying if an elder is married, there should be no question that his unique sexual romantic covenantal loyalty is to his one wife. No doubt about it. And that if an elder is not married, there should be no question that he's not sexually active at all. That there's not even a hint of sexual immorality in this man's life. From there it goes on to his children, right? I've got to pick on the ESV translation again here because it says that his children must be believers. 
But that word translated believers can also mean faithful, you know, faith, faithful, reliable, trustworthy. In this case, I think that's a better translation because let's face it, you can be the best parent in the world and your kids don't believe, right? You're just not in control of that. And look at what the kids are described as, right? It says that those kids should not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So the concern is more for their behavior. Uh, their kids, his kids shouldn't be chaotic. His kids shouldn't be the ones that are open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. They should be generally well-behaved as long as they're in his home as evidence of the kind of household manager that he is. Verse 7 continues, and there's a number of qualifications that are listed, things an elder cannot be, things an elder must be. We can't go into detail with all of them, but I want to just kind of paint a picture for you of the kind of guy that we're talking about who, who should be uh, leading, overseeing uh, Jesus' precious church. He's not to be arrogant, quick-tempered, or violent. So we're not looking for the guy who never had an opinion that he didn't love, right? who has to get in a fight over everything. Uh, to quote a line I've quoted many times before, we're looking for a guy who is of a yielding spirit to others, who is ready for the sake of peace and to gratify others, to comply in many things with their inclinations and to yield to their judgments wherein they are not inconsistent with truth and holiness. He's to not be a drunkard, but self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. There's never in the Bible a prohibition against having a drink of alcohol. But there is a prohibition against drunkenness, and there should be no question that if an elder does drink, that he is in control, and the alcohol is not. There shouldn't be like a, well, sure, he didn't throw up, but he was a little buzzed, you know? No question, right? Above reproach is what this is saying, not even open to the charge of drunkenness. Self-control should characterize him. Self-control, holiness, discipline. These are the things that are listed that should characterize all of his life, right? So he's not an overeater. He's not the guy who can never get stuff done, who can never hit a deadline, who can never get to a meeting on time. He's the guy who can do the important thing even when urgent things are calling for his attention. He's not greedy for gain, but hospitable and a lover of good. So we're not looking for the guy who spends all of his free time figuring out how to get richer, right? Nothing wrong with having money, but this is someone who wants to use his money to be rich in good works, who is eager to do good to others, who is having people into his home, hospitable, eager to serve others with his time, his resources, his energy. A manager of God's household is to reflect the owner, to be godly in his home, his finances, his relationships, his use of food and drink in every area of his life. You can be a CEO and be an awful husband and father. There's plenty of examples of that. You can't be an elder that way. You can be the leader of a gang precisely because you're violent. You can't be an elder that way because the church is not a business. It's not a gang. It's not a government. It's not just a startup or something. It's the family of God, and the overseers should reflect the owner. There's one more qualification that is spelled out in greater detail, and that's the one that we come to in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, and that's because, lastly, doctrine matters. There's really three things, actually, that are said of an elder here. First, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Second, he must give instruction in sound doctrine. And third, he must rebuke those who contradict it. So first, he has to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. In other words, he has to actually believe this stuff, right? This can't just be a lifestyle choice for an elder. He has to really believe firmly that what we have here in Scripture is true. And he should hold firm to the trustworthy word as it was taught, So he's saying we're not looking for an innovator. We're not looking for someone with a lot of cool new ideas. There should be a kind of stability to his thought and to what he believes. That's not being swayed by the latest theological fad or the latest New York Times bestseller. Then he should be able to take that word that he's holding firm to and instruct others in it. 
instruct in sound doctrine. And we're not just talking about teaching, right? There's another word for that, actually. So we're not just looking for someone who can regurgitate information. The thing that's talked about here is something more like what we mean when we talk about preaching or counseling or discipling or leading small group discussions around the Bible. It's someone who can take the truths of the Bible and not just parrot Bible verses at people, but bring them together into coherent doctrine. Uh, that, when you see that word in this passage, that's all it's talking about. Doctrine is uh, combining the truth of the Bible into summary form so that it can be used in ways that really help people, that comfort, encourage, build up, challenge. And so we're looking for someone who can do that kind of thing with the word that he's holding firm to. And lastly, he must be able to rebuke those who contradict the sound doctrine. And this is actually the qualification that's get, that gets the most attention in Titus chapter 1. Uh, Brianna read a couple extra verses there in verses 10 and 11 where we get some details into that. There's actually seven verses there following that talk about why it's so important that an elder be able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. And while that's so important in Titus, it's probably one of the points that we get the most squeamish about. You know, we say, okay, fine, he's, he's got to teach the right stuff, but let's not go around telling people they're wrong, right? I mean, I'm a Christian, I, I, I like this stuff, it works for my life, but I would never tell someone else what they ought to believe, especially if they're Christians too. I mean, who are we to judge them? Who are we to say what's wrong with them? If There's even ways, as with all false doctrine, to put some Bible-sounding words around that, right? So, you know, you could say it like this. Hey, look, we're not, a, we're not saved by assenting to just intellectual propositions, right? We're saved by obediently trusting in Jesus. What really matters is that we live like Christ. And there's some truth in that. But the falsehood is the inference from that, that therefore doctrine doesn't matter. Because the irony is that's a doctrine, right? If you say what really matters to God is the way we live, that we just live like Jesus, that's a doctrine. You're making a truth claim about what the Bible teaches. That's all doctrine is. And ironically, it's the doctrine of works righteousness. It's the doctrine that what God really cares about is that we live like Jesus. But we need elders who can teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it because the center of our faith is not, our central doctrine is not good advice about how you should live, but good news about what Jesus has done for you. What really matters, ultimately, is not how you live for Jesus, but the life that Jesus lived for you, the death he died for you, and how he rose from the dead on your behalf. But that is doctrine. The life of Christ, the identity of Christ, the perfection of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the imputation of his righteousness, doctrine, right? Because that's at the center of our faith. The center of our faith is a message that is communicated through words summarized by doctrine. Elders are stewards of God's house, but the center of this all is Jesus and the message concerning him. Because he's not just a steward of God's house, he's the head of God's house. He didn't just come to represent God's rule on earth. He came as God's ruler on earth, as God himself incarnating his rule in the flesh. And isn't he the ultimate proof that all authority is not oppressive? He's a true authority figure. He's the head. We submit to him. We call him Lord. And yet he's the Lord who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Who was not arrogant or quick-tempered or violent? The one who before his accusers was silent. The one who prayed for the forgiveness of the very people who were driving the nails into his hands. Who was not a drunkard, but self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. The one who enjoyed food and drink with thanksgiving, but was ultimately stripped of all of it, who thirsted on our behalf on the cross, who disciplined himself to go to the cross, to go toward death, when all pleasure was being removed from him. 
Who is not greedy for gain, but hospitable and a lover of good? The one who is eager not to get, but to give of himself to people who had nothing to offer him, who though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Is his oversight a good thing? Do you like being under Jesus' authority? A large part of Christian maturity is just learning to love being under Jesus' oversight. That not only loving to be loved by him, but loving to be ruled by him, because there's nothing better. To be left on your own would not be better than to be ruled by a Lord like this who would give his life for you, who would come not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for you. Do you love his oversight? If so, if so, why wouldn't you subject yourself to the form of government that he has appointed for his church? Why wouldn't you subject yourself to overseers, people, who he says ought to be appointed in every city? Here's what I gotta be honest about. Half of you in the room today probably don't know who your overseers are. And I know that because I know roughly how many people are here today and I know how many members we have at City Light Church. And uh, you know, maybe you're traveling today, I, I'm not talking to you. But if you're here and you're just not a member of a local church, you, you don't have overseers, right? You haven't actually made a formal agreement with any elders to say, these are, these are my overseers. And my question is, why are you the exception? Are you the one Christian who doesn't need oversight in their walk with God? Is Philadelphia the one city that could be in order without having elders appointed here and, and somehow that you don't need to live under them? And, and look, I'm, not, I'm really not here trying to maneuver you into City Light Church, okay? I'll tell you the same thing Matt told you last week. There's good churches in Philadelphia. If you don't trust me, you don't trust the elders of this church, I wish that weren't the case, but go to Liberty up the street, right? Fairmount, Fishtown, they got locations everywhere. Go to Epiphany in North Philly. Go to Grace and Peace in South Philly. Go to Covenant City Church in West. Seriously, we'll help you, right? We'll hook you up with another church. But subject yourself to oversight because every city is out of order until there are elders appointed in that city. Every Christian is meant to be ruled by Jesus through the overseers that he's put in his church. So do it anywhere, right? Anywhere that's preaching the gospel, Go make yourself a member there. But here's the deal. Wherever you do it, they're going to be sinners. They're going to be imperfect. They're the only elders available, right? So it's all we got. And when those elders fail you, which they will, when the elders of City Light Church fail you, there's another overseer in heaven. There's another elder, right? Who you have who will never fail you, who will never let you down, who will use even their failures for your good and for his glory. Now, of course, I would love it if that was at City Light Church, right? I believe in what God's doing here. You just got to see some of that this morning. I would love for you to be a part of that. And if you are a part of City Light, here's some of what this is going to look like for us. First, if Jesus is the perfect overseer and his spirit dwells in us, there's no reason that every person in this room shouldn't aspire to the godliness called for in this passage. Not everyone in the room is going to be an elder. But we shouldn't be reading this saying, hospitality, yeah, I guess that's for the elders, but I kind of like my space. I don't really want to have people in my home, so we'll let them take care of that. No, God's call to every Christian is be holy because I am holy. If you belong to him, this kind of godliness should be the aspiration of our church. It just marks the kind of people that we are as members of God's family. With that said, uh, there should be people actually taking the office of elder, right? Notice that it's plural in verse 5. And throughout the Bible, the assumption everywhere is that elders would be plural. One just can't represent Jesus well enough. And so multiple elders are, are called for. At City Light Church, we're one church with two congregations. This is a new church plant. We've been here for almost three years now in Center City. And so we started off with me as the only elder at our Center City congregation and then five more elders at our Manion congregation who oversee the whole thing. 
But our hope long-term is that City Light Center City will become its own church. And that means we need to actually have our own elders who are here shepherding and focusing on this flock. And my job is not just to kind of sit back and hope that that happens. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.2 actually commands me to take the things I've heard and entrust them to faithful men who would be able to teach others also. In other words, to raise up new elders uh, by training them. I've been doing that kind of informally for the last three years through kind of discipleship, life-on-life type stuff. But over this next nine months, we want to actually start a formal, formal elder development process where men will be evaluated, will apply for the eldership, will go through a nine-month training process, and at the end, we'll put them before you. And if they meet these qualifications, actually receive them as elders here at City Light Center City. So here's where you come into that process. Uh, first, if you, if you sense that God may be pushing you to exercise oversight over this church, if you want to be a part of shepherding this flock under Jesus' ultimate shepherding, let me know. Just tell me. Put it on your Connect card. Email me, whatever. I make no promises, but I would love to know if that's, if that's a desire that God has given you. Second, if, you're, if there are men in this church who you see moving in this direction, I'm not saying they're already there. We're not laying hands on anyone next Sunday and making them elders. But you see them moving in this direction, a positive trend in their life towards this kind of godliness. Or if there's men who you've experience their oversight, and you've been blessed by it, maybe in a city group or on a Sunday team. You say, man, this is a godly leader who I love being uh, under, who I love to follow. Um, Let me know, and uh, this week I'm going to send out an email looking for that information from you if you would like to nominate someone to be considered as an elder. And then third, uh, pray that over the next year, God grows men to be this kind of thing that we see described here, that we would have elders at the end of the year and have a true plurality here at Center City um, by next July. The way that'll go from here is once we get the nominations in, there's going to be a nominating committee meeting that's formed of elders and members of City Light Church who will evaluate the nominees, and from there we will ask those men who uh, get through that committee to apply for eldership. If they're accepted, then they'll go through the nine-month development process, and if they actually do meet the qualifications, we'll institute them as elders. Order matters. Godliness matters. Doctrine matters. And therefore, we as a church must be moving towards the leadership that God has set up for his church. Let's train ourselves for godliness, let's pray for elders, and let's subject ourselves to these elders, ultimately in subjection to our overseer, Jesus Christ, whose oversight we'd never want to live without. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your authority, your loving authority over our lives, Father. Your oversight is for our good. It's that we might share in your holiness. It's that we might live for your glory the very way we were created to live. We could never live this life on our own. We heard five people this morning testify that they don't want to live this life on their own, that they want to live under Jesus' authority. We thank you, Jesus, that um, you choose to govern your church through uh, fallible people. Um, we, we confess even that we're, I, I'm not sure I understand totally why you choose to do it that way, but you do, and we trust that your purposes are good. I thank you for the privilege I have to get to be an elder over a church like this, Um, with such uh, amazing people, such uh, people that you've worked in in such incredible ways. We pray that you would make us a church that has this kind of godliness characterizing the life of every member of this church. I pray that you would provide uh, shepherds who would do the hard work of exercising oversight over this flock to teach sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. I pray you'd be moving in the hearts of some right now in this service to want to take on this kind of role at City Light. I pray you give us a great unity in terms of who those men are that you're calling to fill this very important role in our church. And we pray that um, around this time next year, 
that we would be welcoming in uh, new elders of plurality here at City Light Center City so that um, we may put in order what remains as a new church plant. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.